How can the arts help us examine and engage with social issues? How do our families shape our views, memories, and experience of the world? From her role as Dr. Lisa Cuddy on the hit Fox series House, to her starring role as Abby McCarthy in Bravo's first scripted series, Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce, Lisa Edelstein's range of roles are as diverse as her talent. Some of Edelstein's feature credits include Keeping the Faith, What Women Want, Daddy Daycare, As Good As It Gets, and Fathers and Sons. Lisa Edelstein, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. I find that watching your acting, you have this, this air of sensitivity and vulnerability, and then like in a split second, you can become very piercing and strong. And I think you know, from the audience point of view, for viewers, I think this duality is really interesting to watch because it makes you unpredictable. And then, you know, looking to, to your paintings, which I recently discovered, they also have this duality where you may be depicting your family in their everyday candid moments, but then there's this sense of their private lives and kind of enigmatic and we want to know more. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, especially in the paintings, I the, the imagery that I'm looking for are images that don't feel posed, or even if they were intended to be posed, there's things in there that weren't necessarily meant for public display. So I, I am really interested in telling secrets in that way. Oh, yes. Well, I don't know which secrets you can reveal, or you just want us to imagine those stories. Exactly. Exactly. I want to talk about your life as a, a performer, a writer, director, producer, but the paintings, I was surprised because I didn't know that they were by you, which is always kind of nice. I just came across them and I thought, oh, this figurative work this is so intriguing. And I was just, who is this? Like you appeared on the scene like a fully mature artist, which, which is so fascinating. Well, you know, I've always made things, made objects, but always very privately. And I think being married to an artist, I started to realize and he started to really encourage that expression not be just kept in a drawer. And during the lockdown, when there was nothing else to do, I had all this time to really explore and give myself permission to see that part of my life as something that should be valued and exercised. And do you see a through line to the storytelling that you explore in your painting and um, your performances? For sure. I think, again, like I look at it in a very narrative way because that's how my brain works. So I'm looking for images that tell a story that goes beyond needing to know who's in the image, but it becomes more universal experience of a recognition of an expression or a situation or even just the furniture just draws people into the story of the image. Oh, yeah. The, there's as much compassion I find to the, I don't want to call it a decor because these are real homes, they're real lives, but as there are to the faces. I think my favorite one, and I'm, I'm just excited about this, of course, Love it. I think the, the, my favorite one that I've seen is the sisters, where the two sisters are becoming yeah. like the same person. And that you capture, you know, I guess I see your sense of humor as well in it. There's this, you know, sense of humor in it, but again, this enigmatic interplay and you don't know. You yeah. Know. Yeah. <laughs> my sister is, is only her butt. <laughs> She's still complaining. But no, I love that one because it's also an awkward angle. The photograph is taking an awkward angle. And these are pictures mostly that were not in albums. They were like in a big box. I inherited all these photographs from my parents because they downsized. During COVID, I moved them to LA to a senior community not far from me. And they were just, they just like loaded me up with all the family photos that no one had ever really seen. So I have so many pictures and I have a lot of pictures of dead people. I have a lot of pictures of people that don't even know who they are anymore. 
And that really fascinates me just when all that's left of you is these photographs that no one can even name. And so it feels almost witchy where you go back into somebody's life who you either knew when you were a baby and they were already grown up or an old person, or you didn't know at all. And I, I'm exploring these incredibly personal moments of theirs, little gestures that they were making, the outfits they chose, the little pins they might've put on their lapels. And all of that feels almost intrusive at times, but at the same time, it feels like I'm honoring somebody and bringing them back to life. Yeah. And I'm wondering how that relates then, you know, this this backstory, like when you're acting, when you're receiving a script, and sometimes it might not be very many lines at all, and you're intuiting all of this, and you might get it interpreted and told to you, but maybe if you're playing a guest role, you don't get that much guidance. I don't know. And then you have to fill it in. How, just describe for us the process of the layering. Yeah. I think you can always tell when somebody either, and sometimes it's just bad writing, but even with bad writing, it's just a heavier lift for an actor. You always want to make sure that when your character walks into a room, they've walked out of another room, like that there was a place they came from that brought them here. And there's a reason why what's happening here will affect them in the way that it affects them. And now, of course, you have to make those reasons fit the story. So it is sometimes a more difficult task if the story is written really badly, which happens a lot, especially with guest star roles, because they are underdeveloped characters that are there to serve somebody else's storyline many times. But it's a really interesting exercise to try and pull off. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can. And I find it very interesting, you know, when television and film started to really merge. It used to be when I first started in this business, they were very separate entities. You know, no matter how successful you were in television, people would always ask you if you were going to try and do films. And then somebody who was known for doing films did television it seemed like a step down somehow. And now those worlds are very much intermingled. But when it very first started happening and I started seeing people who were used to working on films where they would have three months to shoot an hour and a half, very well-developed story, and then had to come in and do an episode of television, which moves very quickly, I saw that the struggle was real. Even for people who you might think would know better, they actually didn't know any better. It was a very difficult transition period for a lot of people. And I think that from the guest roles that I've seen of you, you've always put your own stamp on it and we've been given really challenging ones. But I'm wondering where your courage comes from, because going back to, you know, some of those early parts like Seinfeld, where you have this kind of public orgasm over a bowl of risotto or the way like even younger than that, you dived into the club scene at 14 and quickly became a celebutante, I think was the term. And then from there afterwards, you decided to write this AIDS awareness musical. It just seems like you always, from the outside, it looks like you had this certainty and drive and confidence from the beginning. I don't know if confidence is the right word, but certainly very driven. And, you know, I grew up in suburbia outside of New York, and I always felt like I was on the outside and wanting to be on the inside. There, There's a certain uh, element of like running and running and always running and always trying to do more. And it's not necessarily because I think I'm the greatest or the bestest. It's because I just have to do it. Like I'm a storyteller and I want to tell stories. It's funny because when I did my show, Positive Me, it was not long after I had been written about in the New York Times Magazine in this piece called Lisa in Wonderland that Maureen Dowd wrote. And it was this big article of a day in the life of me as this club kid and you know, when she followed me around that day, I made sure that I was, you know, 
having rehearsals for shows that I was working on and doing all these things, but none of that was really what she focused on in the article. She was very kind to me in this article and she could have really ruined my life, but she really didn't. She was lovely to me in this article and I really appreciated that. But I inherited about 50 stalkers because my phone number and my address were listed in the phone book. So suddenly I'm a 20 year old woman with no real experience in the world at large with celebrity other than the microcosm of celebrity I had in New York. And now I'm being followed by strange men. I'm being called day and night. Uh, people are dropping things off at my apartment. Like it was very frightening. And so I had to really take a step back from my dreams and say, yeah, I always knew I wanted to be an actress, but I had to ask myself if I wanted to be an actress because I loved acting or because I wanted to be a celebrity because being a celebrity sucked. <laughs> like it didn't want to have that experience any more than I was having it in that moment. And the answer was yes, ultimately. I realized, yes, this is truly what I wanted. But at that point in time, there was a moment where I actually got an application for the Cooper Union School for Art. And, and then I didn't really understand what the assignments were and I didn't follow through with it. But, but it's funny, that was always sort of a, another thing that I wanted to do that I wasn't really acknowledging. So by the time I wrote my musical, I wrote my musical because, because we were in the middle of a horrible crisis. The AIDS crisis was very real to me and my friends and not real to the people that I knew from New Jersey. They, just, they thought it was government hype. They didn't believe in it. And so I couldn't even fathom that. And I had taken a class with Elizabeth Suedos about, about writing political satire. And she was very encouraging in terms of what I was doing. And so maybe it was just gumption. I just thought, okay, then this is what I'm going to do. And because I had been a celebrity of sorts, I was able to get them to hear my pitch at Umama, which is an amazing theater in downtown New York. And then I was able to get a workshop production and then I earned my way into a full production. So yeah, there's a little bit of gumption there, but I don't think that gumption comes from like, I'm the greatest or the bestest or confidence in any way. I think it just comes from drive. Yeah, I think not overconfident. No, it just seems you throw yourself in. I, I mean, you throw myself in. Yeah, I throw not, myself it's, in. It's, I'm not going to put my foot in. I'm just going to dive in. And I'm just gonna, and you seem like just, it, I want to say it's effortless because I know it takes such diligence and concentration to make it seem effortless. I have always thrown myself into everything. And that includes things that are terrible because I want to have the whole experience, even if it's going to hurt, even if I know it's going to hurt. For better or for worse, that has been how I've lived my life. And so it's given me a lot of information and allowed me to play a lot of different roles and understand a lot of different points of views. Yeah. I was wondering, did you discover something private within yourself during the making of Little Bird where you play a Holocaust survivor who raised an Indigenous Canadian girl? I was so excited to be offered that role. They sent me the scripts and... I read them and I wept so much just reading those scripts because the story is so profoundly sad. And I was really very honored to be playing a Jewish Holocaust survivor caught up in a very difficult story. And I was also honored to be on set and at a good part of the time that I was there, we were on Indian reservations and sort of having a cultural sharing time and listening to their stories and really just being a witness to what they experienced. So a lot of that was very profound for me working on that project. And I guess being able to tell the story that my character owned was of course really personal to me, just being Jewish. And a lot of times 
being Jewish, we don't necessarily get to play Jewish. So it was really important to me that I honor that story the best that I could. It was a little challenging with the accent because there's no accent that makes sense <laughs> because she's Polish, Yiddish, grew up in French Canada, educated in English. It was just baffling. We were like, okay, we're just going to roll with this, make some choices. <laughs> well, it was very moving and it helps bring together the two traumas because to explain a little bit about the story for those who haven't seen. So in the 1960s, really until the 90s, the Canadian government, they were trying to resolve the problem that the residential schools caused. The residential schools were run by the Catholic Church and they were based on an idea that you save the child and kill the Indian. That's the horrible saying, which is to remove these children from their culture, erase their culture so they become regular, normal people in the world. You know what I mean? Completely racist. So the residential school program, they would actually go in, steal children from families against their will, put them in group housing to re-educate them. Recently, they've found like mass graves of children because they would get ill and die or they were abused and they would die. And these were unreported deaths. And then the children would be sent back to their homes, no longer speaking the language, having changed their names. If they had a name, sometimes they were just given a number and their whole culture completely demolished. And what ended up happening in conjunction with that, they were living on reservations where they had limited access to work and food. And so there was a lot of like flour and sugar, a lot of diabetes, a lot of disease, a lot of, there were a lot of ways that these communities were being decimated. And it led to a lot of addiction problems, et cetera, et cetera. So the problem made the problem worse. The, the crime made the problems worse. And so to resolve this, it's still thinking in a racist way. The Canadian government did this thing called the 60 scoop, where now they stole the children, literally sometimes at birth, just said, you're not capable of parenting this child and would take the child. And sometimes when the kids were four, five, six, seven years old, they would come to the house and steal the children and give them to white people. They would create catalogs of children, like a Sears catalog, where the children had numbers and you could just pick the one you wanted and you got that one. There was no vetting of the parents. A lot of these, some of the boys, which were harder to adopt out, ended up as farmhands in the States, basically slave labor. I met a man who, when he was, I think five or six, was adopted out as slave labor to a family in Pittsburgh. He worked on their farm. He lived in the barn. He was not raised with the other children. He just lived in the barn, became an alcoholic and a drug addict. And when he was 18, his mother was allowed to find out where they had sent him. And she had been collecting all of the children that had been stolen from her and bringing them back to Canada. And when he went back to Canada, he got sober. He learned his language. He learned his culture. And the day that I met him, he's the same age as me. He was becoming chief of the tribe. And it was really a very, so moving, the whole experience. Anyway, so that's called the 60 Scoop. My character is a woman who, through Jewish Family Services, thought she was doing a good deed by adopting one of these children who she believed was abandoned or neglected or in bad situation. That's what they were told. And they were also told by the social workers to change their names and to erase their culture because it was not good for them. So she changed her daughter's name to Esther. She raised her Jewish she had no information on the family that her daughter had come from. And her daughter was five when she got her. So it's not like her daughter didn't have any memories of her early life, but she was taught to forget those things. And in this story, we meet this family when the daughter is now 25 and about to get married and is just haunted by vague memories of her early childhood. 
and is unable to move forward with her life until she figures out where she comes from. And it's her journey where she tries to gather up all the lost children of this family and bring them back to this reservation. And in the end, she confronts her mother about this whole horrible thing. And her mother is horrified because it's not something that she ever understood she participated in. That's the first time the mother finds out that she is complicit in the crime. And she is a woman who lost her whole family in the Holocaust. She's the only survivor. Everyone died at Auschwitz. And so she is horrified to feel complicit in somebody else losing their family. Yeah, it's such a powerful and important story. And, you know, you know, seeing these traumas that one unwittingly passes on, it makes me think about the coping mechanisms we need when our lives are ripped apart. You know, in a way, it's a story of a strong individual whose confidence rises as she gets closer to recognizing her true self. And I note that one of the other roles you're best known for is Lisa Cuddy on House, where you also adopt a daughter. But, you know, in that circumstance, the mother really could not raise her daughter. In the series House, traumas are usually punctuated by humor or absurd situations. So although the characters experience pain and the character House himself lives with chronic pain, the stories are always bending towards the light. So... I'm just wondering, where do you feel your sense of humor comes from? Because you have a great sense of resilience and playfulness. You know, who were your early comedy mentors? My favorite when I was a kid, my favorite show was The Carol Burnett Show. I loved her so much. And whatever, I'm a child of the 70s, the Charlie's Angels, Three's Company, you know, Steve Martin at his finest when he was young. And also I'm Jewish, so there's a lot of Jewish humor in there. There's a lot of sort of cultural reference. Yeah, so just my family. My, my grandmother was hilarious. She was a great storyteller. Yeah, sounds like a great training to have that in your background and your upbringing. You know, tell us a little bit about the experience of making House, because you really held your own in that role. Well, it was very well written. That is something that really helps. I think I got lucky a lot of the times because since Hugh was the star of the show, they'd frequently shoot his coverage first and then they would reverse and I could do my coverage. And so I knew what Hugh was going to do by the time they turned around like to me. So I knew what I was reacting to, even if he didn't do it the same way when it was my coverage. I think part of the beauty of being in a long running television show is that, you know, season one, you're playing the role they wrote. By season two, they're writing the person you're playing, if that makes sense. Like you start to build your own voice and they start to merge so that when they're writing, Cuddy says, it's me that they're thinking of and it's my humor and it's my rhythms. So by the time you get to season three, you're full human beings having this dialogue and a lot of who you are as an actor is incorporated into that character. So it's challenging in the first season because they're all writing in a room off to the side while you're shooting. So they're not seeing what you're doing. There's no feedback loop yet. Once the feedback loop is there, it's really, it really gets good. It gets really fun. Yes. And I believe you're making a lot of friendships with the writers on that. And you're kind of moving towards afterwards, the girlfriend's guide to divorce, where you had a writing and directing role. You know, I was just wondering how you break down a story and how you build up scripts. Yeah, I think first you've got to get your story right and really understand the journey that everybody's on. And then once you're really happy with that, you can incorporate what it means to make something in in film form. Like why film? Why not a book? 
So how do you take this story that you've built and make it a visual story? And then as an actor, I read it. I'll take each character and I'll make sides, basically meaning I'll take all their scenes and make a little pamphlet of each character's scenes. And I'll look at it like an actor. If I'm an actor and I'm playing this role, do I feel like this person walked in from another place, like has a background, has a life story, has a reason to be here that isn't just to serve the story? And that's really fascinating because I can really use my own long experience about how to build a character and what I get frustrated with scripts that I don't have any control over. And I can resolve those problems because I know their problems as an actor. And so that's really fun for me. And then once I've done all that and I feel that everybody who's ever on the page at any moment in time is a whole human being, that if I walked in there as an actor, I would get what it is. I would understand where they're coming from and I would be able to create a great scene, even if it's a one page scene. Then finally, you have to look at it like you're directing it and you have to kill your babies. You have to figure out what you absolutely don't need anymore. Now that you've flushed out the whole thing and you've let it get too long and you just figure out like what is absolutely necessary for this story. Because a lot of the times, all that exploration I'll do as an actor writing for actors, that'll go away. That'll be diminished down to a small amount because it's enough to know what it is. And then you can be more specific about the things that you actually need in the story. Yeah. And it's just giving them that impression that they've had that lived life. And it just, a few seconds on screen, I guess. You know, with Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce, you took on a central role that explored themes of empowerment and aging. What impact do you think that had on audiences? I meet a lot of women specifically and men who talk to me about their divorces and that show got them through their divorce. I hear that much more than I hear it being about age. And part of the problem, I think, is that all the girlfriends I had, except for Janine Garofalo, who's sadly only there for a short time, they were all much younger than me. So but didn't end up becoming about women my age. It was, I mean, most of them were in their 30s. And I was 48 when I got that job. So I was in my 50s for most of that job. I think what was very exciting as an actor was that I was 48 when I got that job. That was very unusual. Like that just didn't happen when I first got into this industry. You were pretty much like just playing the random mom somewhere once you were over 40, unless you were a massive star. So I'm happy to know that envelope has pushed forward. I still think it needs to push a little longer Now at my age, at this point, I feel a little bit in between worlds because I'm young looking for my age and what they write my age to be on camera is much older than my perception of this age. Like usually when I hear them say my age on camera, they're like washed out and dowdy and sort of irrelevant. (laughs) It's really sad. So we still have more work to do in the area of like pushing numbers out of the story and just being complete human beings. I mean, women in their 50s are at their most powerful. It's like you're not going to reproduce anymore. So unfortunately, that whole storyline goes away, which is like the main storyline of every woman's part and everything all the time. And you're not the crone. Instead, you're this incredibly empowered, experienced, smart woman with a lot of energy and insight, and you're at the prime of your life, and there are no stories being told. I mean, there's some, but like a tiny fraction. So there's no representation for women in the world to see themselves reflected at this age as a vital and incredible part of our society at, at their most powerful. 
Indeed. And of course, you've looked like you're 30 forever. <laughs> I think you're painting now all the time. So when you look at your face, it's so suited to so many roles because I think it always, in a glance, it communicates intelligence and perceptive. And so I think it's a gift for any director. So I don't understand that pigeonholing that happens but here in France. It's not really, not so much the case. No, not at all. In Europe, it's totally different. I watch a lot of shows from the UK and it's just so refreshing because there's just people there. It's just wonderful actors with interesting faces, at least not to me, because I don't know these actors. Doesn't feel to me to be like a name game where it's got to be the most famous person in every role at their most beautiful. So it's interesting to watch. I really enjoy seeing those things. And also, I just think that casting directors would see you and know that you are capable of taking on these versatile roles like Phoebe and the Kaminsky Method, where you'll just, just go there, or where you're the unstable daughter of Alan Arkin and that, or you can play a transgender woman, or I just, I don't know what it is, but they feel I, somehow you can handle it and you won't be afraid to go in. I love that. I love when people trust me like that. It's very exciting. And so what do you feel some of the most challenging roles for you have been? I mean, challenge comes from struggle. So it's, it was hard. House was hard because I didn't have a lot of time in each episode to establish myself. I wasn't in most of the cases. So I would have, you know, a scene to create a whole world out of. And so I really worked hard on making sure Cuddy had a major backstory with house. And I learned a lot from that experience. Little Bird was hard just because of the accent was very confusing to me. I really felt very insecure about it. And I really like, it was so important to me that I represent well in that show because it was important to me. The show itself was important to me. So that was a struggle. And I learned a lot from that too. And I would do a few things differently if I had another opportunity to do something like that. Yeah, there's all different kinds of struggles. Being a guest star is a struggle sometimes because we were talking about it earlier. You don't, you're there to resolve someone else's story. I remember I played a part on, I can't remember the name of the show. It was after Ally McBeal. It was a spinoff of Boston Legal with James Spader. So I was James Spader's love interest. Anyway, my character was so shy that she could hardly speak. And it was his love interest. And so for like three episodes, I had to be this woman who could hardly speak. But because I was involved in a case, because that's why we knew each other, at the very end of the third episode, having created a character who was so shy she could hardly speak, I had to do a three-page monologue about the case. So I had to finish the story because that's what I'm there to do. I'm a guest star. I had to complete the story for James by doing this three-paragraph speech coming from a person who doesn't speak. And it's stuff like that, where that's where your hidden challenges are, because you have to do such a heavy lift of resolving this story in a way that makes no, you see it a lot on like law and order and those kinds of things where you get this great actor and at the very end they have to do this monologue of why I did it. It's so hard to do well. It's so hard. Speaking about having to speak, you know, you've interpreted the music of Aaron Sorkin's lines on the West Wing. Well, I met Aaron because I did an episode of Sports Night. You know, the way this town works, I had done an episode of another show. I can't even remember what. Oh, ER. I was in the live episode of ER. And so Tommy Shlami knew me from that. And then they had fired somebody off of Sports Night. Sometimes you get a guest starring job and they don't think you're right for it once you have it in the They'd let you go and they have to find a replacement. So it's sort of like you get a call at nine in the morning and, hey, can you be 
at this place at this time. So I said, sure. I came in. I did a scene in front of them. And Aaron and Tommy were like super psyched because I interpreted my character in, in a different way than they had. And they loved my idea. So it was a really nice moment and a nice way into that storyline. And after a week of that, of working on that show, Aaron told me that he really wanted me to be in West Wing. He had a character that he'd love me to accept. Actually, I don't even think I auditioned for that character. And so that's how I met those guys. And so the same thing on West Wing, it was very collaborative, even though it's very specific. Aaron likes his words to be said exactly. But again, even in that process, there was a way that I was interpreting my character's ending of the very first scene with Rob Lowe that was different from what they had expected, but they loved it. So that's how the story got told instead. And it was a, a wonderful experience to be trusted in that way by these really talented men. So yeah, I think Aaron was, you know, everybody loved his scripts. He's such a great writer. So everybody was happy to find their voice within the poetry of his language and his rhythms. My name is Aaron Bennett. I'm a junior at Boston University, majoring in film and television with a minor in Jewish studies. Our conversation with Lisa was thought-provoking and inspiring, but even more so, her words carried a sense of urgency for young and upcoming actors and filmmakers. As aspiring artists, there is no voice more profound than that of a successful creative. And sharing her memories and experiences from her time in the industry, Lisa's passion and love of storytelling was infectious and obvious. Through her vast catalog of roles, writing, directing, and now her visual art, Lisa Adelstein has found seemingly endless outlets to tell her stories. However, Lisa expressed concern for the modern age of the film and television industry. She voiced her frustration with the quality of the stories being produced these days. She described feeling creatively stunted by the new age of television and cinema. But can we as audiences blame the writers and producers for this change? How are storytellers supposed to market to a generation who may not be interested in long-form stories anymore? How can your art be expected to survive in an age when artificial intelligence can reproduce your work? These lingering questions will continue to linger, however. The changes are just beginning, and the future of the industry was just as unpredictable to Lisa as it is to me. However, there is peace in the struggle and beauty in change. Lisa provided reassurance by describing the passion that Little Bird inspired in her and the wholeness that she felt in portraying that character. Even in the new world of fast entertainment, there will always be stories like Little Bird. There will always be people like Lisa who need to tell their stories. And as long as we have them, the future of the industry will be just fine. Hi again, Lisa. So I, I think it's interesting that, you know, just in a short amount of time, we've gone over a handful of projects that you've been a part of. And so especially with shows like House and The West Wing, you're definitely able to connect to a generation like my parents who are very familiar with your work. And I've seen House and The West Wing, and so I was as well. But for people of my age, the Gen Zers out there that maybe may have missed projects like House or The West Wing, the first go around, it doesn't seem to put the period on that sentence. And you seem to be able to through other projects like American Dad and The Legend of Korra, you're still marketing yourself and putting your own mark on generations like mine. And so I was just wondering if you sort of feel that pushback of getting exposure to people of my generation. I think the hardest thing with your generation is that you don't really watch shows. Like your generation watches TikTok. 
it's so it's like, it's really, it's a storytelling problem of like, will you ever be interested in long form storytelling? We don't really know yet how you're going to be in 10 years and what you're going to be looking for. You're so used to like really quick stories. You're also so used to reality, you know, in quotation marks as being part of your entertainment, both on TikTok and reality shows, which are very cheap and easy to make. So the there's a lot of pressure on my business to figure out how to incorporate this new generation of people who are being raised so differently. Like, what's it going to, we don't even know. We don't know what it's going to look like. Sure. Yeah. And so you feel that pressure of how do I reach these people? And so I'm sure you've been dealing with that for a little bit now as TikTok has been a big thing and streaming services are a big thing these days. And it's sort of the fast entertainment. And so how do you how have you started to adapt to that? I'm in the process. The thing about this industry is that you are never safe and you're never done. Like you're never going to be like, all right, I, I've arrived. This is it. Like it's always changing and it's definitely harder to make a living now than it used to be. I'm very grateful I came up when I did because I have savings and I have a home. But I think for young people coming up right now, it's really challenging because the whole industry is changing. Like we just had a huge strike two strikes. There might be another strike from the IATSE union. And so everything is just like very slow to get started again. And because of the deals that we made in these strikes, all the streaming companies are reorganizing and restructuring and they're laying off thousands of people and they're merging with each other. So even the, the very landscape from which we sell our products to is changing so rapidly that we don't know what to do. I had a friend call me a writer, very successful writer who was on a very big show who then worked on another big show. And he said that the show that he's on right now is ending and he doesn't know what to do because he's got a couple of pilots that people really want to buy, but he'd rather work on something like Law and Order, which is a machine and not that interesting to write on because he'll make more than he'll make if he sells a show he created and then runs that show because people aren't buying anything for any money anymore. And he's raising children. So there's a lot of catching up that we're all trying to do. During the strike, I was able to do a, an independent film because it had permission from the unions. But we did it for no money. It was like $250,000. And that seems to be becoming the new model of being able to get anything made is you have to do it incredibly cheaply and then hope it sells. But that means nobody gets paid doing it. The, the crew barely gets paid. The actors barely get paid. So it's not really a sustainable business. I've written a feature that keeps almost getting made. And every time it doesn't get made, every time something falls apart and I have to sit with it for a while, I rewrite it and it gets better. So like so far, the process has been very positive because I've, I've come out with a much better script than I had four years ago when it was greenlit or three years ago. And it's about a 15, a 16 year old girl. So it'll be great for your gen, but she's a kid with no phone. So she's, she sticks out. But anyway, that process is so long and there's so many hurdles. There's so many things in between in the way of getting something actually made. And it costs so much money. Even a low budget film is, unless it's ultra low, you're talking about $5 million. So that's $5 million of somebody else's money. And so the first thing that happens is they want you to past as many famous people as you can. <laughs> and, and it's a very small list. And they'll suggest people that are absolutely absurd and don't fit the story at all. And so then you have the problem of constantly having to stunt cast things. That's what it's called when you just put famous people in roles. And they don't serve the storyline. 
And it doesn't mean it's going to be more successful. It's just for the people who are financing it, they're just trying to find any way to sort of guarantee they'll make their money back. Of course, it's their money. But then you look at something like Squid Game, in which we knew nobody in that show, and it was a massive, massive hit. So anyway, there's a lot of ways that the business is changing and restructuring. That painting has been a real relief because it's something that I can just do and not wait for somebody to tell me whether it's right or wrong. And I can do it myself. I don't have to hire somebody more famous than me to do it. <laughs> and just following on that, as we're living our lives through screens, uh, what are your reflections on the way AI is changing the way we receive and make stories? And I just spoke to a director yesterday who said, you know, eventually they'll be able to like say, edit this like Sam Peckinpah and it'll happen. Yeah, I, I think AI has been used a lot longer than we realize. I mean, already for many years, if you had a scene that took place in a stadium, you only had 100 people in the stadium and they made it look like 20,000 people were in the stadium. Like it's already been generated. We're already doing that. I think there was a requirement that you had to hire a certain percentage of them to be human and then the rest could be digitally put in. I just don't know that we can stop this train. I, and I'm, again, really grateful I came up when I did because I got to do really wonderful work and make a living at it. And I just don't know how that's going to continue. Do you remember the Lego movie? It's a part of the story of the Lego movie, that dumb sitcom that always was the same joke over and over again, where it was the family sit it was playing on every television all the time. It was always the same episode. And that was like a computer generated sitcom. I hope that people are more interested in the kind of things that come out of human experience, but I don't know. I don't know that it'll continue to be that way because AI is going to get so smart that it'll seem human. And for a lover of storytelling, you come off very passionate about that. You said earlier that you almost feel a need to tell stories. And so it's scary to have a paycheck and your family, depending on whether or not you're able to tell the story that you want to tell. And that's scary for me too. And so that makes me really go back to what you said about Little Bird and how you felt empowered by being able to be in a role that you really actually felt passionate about and wanted to be in. And I'm Jewish as well. And so I also really connected to what you said about feeling connected to that character. And I was just wondering if other roles like that have come up or there have been other experiences where you felt a drive maybe simply based on your faith as a Jewish person to go out and create and whether or not your faith can inspire you in that way. The funny thing is a lot of my characters don't start off as Jewish, but like two weeks in, all of a sudden they're Jewish. <laughs> like, And not because I said so, like they just stop fighting it. You know, like Abby McCarthy on Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce, her name is McCarthy, which is decidedly not a Jewish name. But like two weeks in, they were like, and her dad wasn't Jewish, but her mom was. Like, it was like a whole dance to sort of explain why I was playing a person named McCarthy, which I, it's fine. I love having to do it. We had a funny scene in that show where my mom had suddenly died and we were sitting Shiva. And the people that I was working with who are so lovely and kind didn't know any Jewish people. So I was like, they're only Jew. So they went and bought props for the scene that were all the Jewish things they could find. So I arrive at this set where we're sitting Shiva and there's, I'm not kidding, matzah and bagels and a challah and habdala candles and Shabbos candles and a menorah. And like, I mean, I would have been insulted if I didn't love these people so much. And so I was like, how do I make sense of this? So I 
added a line, which I'm very proud of, where we're going through the supermarket and we're buying all these things and that we're buying it because my mother was so neurotic that in her will, it said that because she didn't know when she was going to die, she wanted to make sure that all these things were available at her shiva to cover all the bases. <laughs> and I thought I really won with that one. So yeah, I mean, specifically Jewish, that would be, I had a lot of fun doing Keeping the Faith, although that was like a little stereotypical in an ugly way, which I don't like to do, but there was a lot of representation in that movie that wasn't just that. So I felt okay about it, but it was a lot of fun to play with Ben Stiller in that way. But otherwise, the things that I've really felt proud of doing because I was passionate about playing a transgender woman which at the time, there was no transgender actors that were acting. So now today would be really offensive for me to be playing that role. But at the time, it was risky even as a woman to play that role. And I was so proud to do it because I'd known a lot of transgendered people in my life. And so I was really eager to be able to play this woman in a really dignified way and not make fun of her and not make her a joke. And it was a really beautiful task to be asked to take on. I got to play, I had the first ever lesbian makeout scene on network television on a short-lived show called Relativity. That was another one where I felt really honored to be asked to do that, having been in and around like the gay community my whole adult life, like in the club scene. It was like all my friends were gay. So I was really happy to represent doing that. And playing a call girl on West Wing, you know, do, playing a hooker that wasn't demeaned in any way, like she was a dignified human being who was in law school, then this was what she was doing to put herself through school. Like, I really appreciated being able to tell that story with dignity. So yeah, there's a lot of times when that's come up and it's always been really, really profound for me. Then your versatility is so impressive. And we're so excited to see how you flourish within the painting field. And just on that note of the Jewish stories, of course, you have interpreted uh, the work of our good friend, Edgar Karen. I never thought that could be filmed because I, it's always one of my favorite stories. But just tell us about that experience, because some of the stories are unfilmable, but you brought it to screen. So I was asked by our rabbi to, to do this event at the Jewish University here to read a couple of Edgar Carrot's stories because she was doing a conversation with him on stage. So they sent me two short stories by him and I really didn't understand unzipping. So I asked them, can I just read the one story because I don't understand the other one. I don't know how to read it. And they're like, no, please read two. We really wanted to read two because they're very short. Unzipping is like a page long. So I was screwed. In my, my mind, I'm screwed. I have to read this thing. So I read the first story. Great. And then I have to read Unzipping. And because I'm an actor, and now I'm an actor on stage, and there's an audience, I have to save my own life, right? Now I have to figure out how to connect to this material, or I'm going to fail on stage in front of this audience. So, so I am so determined to find my way into the story that by the time I get to the end of the paragraph that is the whole story of Unzipping, I am in love with the story. <laughs> like the whole thing made sense to me all at once on stage in front of Edgar and the rabbi and this audience. That I turned around to Edgar. I was like, I'm Lisa. Do you mind if I make this story into a short film? And he was like, great. So we then followed up and he gave me permission. And I wrote a 15 minute script out of this paragraph story because I thought it was very visual and hilarious. And I had just finished Girlfriend's Guide and I had all this energy and I'd been working 14 hours a day for three years. So I was like, I, I, my muscles were strong and I really wanted to try to direct something that was 
so meaningful to me. So yeah, so I wrote it, I directed, I starred in it, got some friends to act with me and people to be on my set, paid for it myself, had a really profound experience doing it. And I just love it. Now, of course, like I have issues because this the uh, colorization is wrong. It's too dark when you watch it on a monitor, blah, blah, blah. Like I just wanted to go in there and fix it. Now I know more. So I, there's things I want to fix. Oh, because I had an image of it in my mind when I read the story first, but I thought it was beautifully done. I like the the color palette. I think that his his stories are like dreams. So that makes sense. Like there are moments where like when she's doing the unzipping or when she's hiding the skin bag, there's moments you actually can't see the details of it because it's too dark. So unless you like, even if you jack up your brightness on the computer screen, it's technical. It drives me crazy because I know what I shot and I can't see it. And I'm wondering how that story came alive for you as you were reading it on stage, finding the energy in the moment and the surprise of the, the living moment. I'm wondering what you miss about theater. I know you did some Zoom pandemic performances, and I don't know, will you be returning more to theater to relive that? I had so much fun doing that pandemic play. Yeah, I would love to do some theater. I miss it. I, it's been a long time. And there's not a lot of theater in Los Angeles, but especially since the pandemic, because a lot of companies lost all their funding, but hopefully it'll start to revive again. And then I, I was bi-coastal for a long time. And now that our kids are grown up, I'd love to be more bi-coastal and be able to work in New York and because that's really where more of it's going on. So yeah, yeah, I would love to do that. We've been talking a lot about the, the future of the film and television industry. And as you reflect on the future and the teachers who have been important to you and the importance of the arts, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? My favorite teacher was in second grade. I had a teacher named Mrs. Abo who let me write all my homework assignments in rhyme. And it was like such a simple thing. I asked her if I could write all my homework assignments in rhyme. And she said, absolutely. And like, she gave me permission to be wildly creative while still doing my work. And little moments like that can really change a kid's life. I think we, I had lobbied actually with this group called the Creative Coalition. We went and lobbied in DC to really fight for the arts being added to the STEM programs to make them STEAM programs because they're so interconnected. It's creative imagination that got us to the moon. It's science fiction stories that we are getting us to Mars. It's like, they're all really, you know, playing the piano helps you in math. I mean, it's all part of the beautiful development of the brain. And, and it helps so much for learning other things. You know, I'm a kind of person who I don't do well in lectures, but I don't like sitting for a very long time. But if I can listen while I'm drawing or painting, then I will actually retain more of what I'm hearing because it's connected now to what I've actually made while I'm listening to it. When I look at my paintings, I remember what I was reading at each section of the painting. So that's the way my brain works. And I think a lot of people who are creative, that's the way their brain works. We're like, we need to develop one skill in order to develop another. And using your imagination is like, is key to all of it. Yes, it's what drives progress. And I recognize that you did a painting of Mrs. Abo. I did. <laughs> So I, I didn't know if it was your actual teacher. And I think that we, of course, we have to support teachers and to have to support education in the arts. I always think of that John Steinbeck quote where he says, I've come to believe that a great teacher is a great artist. And there are as few of those as there are any other great artists. She was let go the next year. Oh. She was my favorite teacher. Like my favorite teacher. And she was let go. I don't know why, but like. She she taught me, she let me write all my homework assignments in rhyme. She also taught us the word concentration. 
And it's like she set up the room and she told us what the word concentration meant. And then she said, here's a task or do whatever you want, but be quiet and focus on this thing. And like three hours went by and I had never had that experience of totally recognizing how time could fly by when you're really focused on doing something. She also, whenever there was a problem kid in class, she would never humiliate them in any way. She would take them aside and have a conversation with them separate from everybody. And uh, she was just a perfect, you know, it's, she was a really talented teacher. I mean, I don't remember anything from my life. And I remember all those things from second grade from this woman. She also wore very good shoes and she had pretty hair. <laughs> well, I wonder what other avenues she, she took. I think she's passed that on too. I think you're a great teacher and this conversation has been very educational. And she was a bit ahead of her time because they're now teaching this kind of concentration, sometimes meditation in schools. So this is, you know, maybe she was just too ahead of her time. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> Well, you're a natural storyteller. So thank you, Lisa Edelstein, for helping us see behind the scenes and inviting us into your imaginative world, sharing how you build characters through performance, writing, directing, and your visual art. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. It's nice meeting you both. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Aaron Bennett with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Sophie Garnier and Aaron Bennett. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.